please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm chapter 42, Psalm 42. As we go to God's word, let's also go to him in prayer asking for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for not abandoning us, not leaving us, always being with us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have preserved your word to reveal yourself and to reveal your purposes on earth. Father, would you give us a growing hunger for your word, knowing that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So, Father, as we prayed moments ago, may we be a people who are humble, contrite in heart, and tremble at your word. For we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is an introduction to Psalms 42 and 43 uh, today and next Sunday. Uh, We finished a couple of weeks ago book one of the Psalter. Uh, Psalms uh, 1 through 41, and now we begin in book 2, which goes Psalms 42 through 72. Uh, Some Many scholars think that the Psalms were kind of organized and and arranged in in five books to reflect the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and so you see that here in the Psalms. Uh, I want to speak briefly about the structure of both Psalm 42 and 43. You may notice that uh, there's a title at... uh, Psalm 42, but no title at, at 43, and, and most all scholars and commentators and uh, based on early Hebrew manuscripts see this as one psalm, that Psalm 42 and 43 are two parts of a single close-knit poem, and one commentator says of these two psalms that they are sadly beautiful, sadly beautiful, and you'll notice a common balanced refrain that unites three stanzas. There Three movements, as we'll see, um, past, present, and future. Now, what's the context for Psalm 42? Well, the psalmist, uh, the unknown psalmist, is, is, is living in exile. He's, he's away from Jerusalem. Um, we don't know the circumstance. We know he's taunted by pagans around him. And he feels, at times, abandoned by God. This psalm is a lament the psalmist yearns to return to Jerusalem. He, he longs to return to the temple to corporate worship. And at that time, the temple were, was where God specifically said, this is where I'll be. This is where I'll dwell. Even though Solomon rightly said, there's no way that this man-made structure can contain you, God. But yet the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God said, this is where I'm going to meet with my people. And this Psalmist and some of God's people have been removed from the temple, removed from Jerusalem. He, he laments to be in God's very presence. He longs for deliverance. He longs for restoration. I want to speak briefly about, a, about misery in the world and lament in the scriptures, in particular the Psalms. Our shorter catechism asks a question uh, as to what happened as a result of the fall, the fall of man into sin. And the answer in question 17 is the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. 
I often think of an estate as a great place to be. You know, like I have an estate. But scripture or, or our confession speaks of no, what is the state right now that we're in? It's a state, an estate of sin and misery. And question 19 goes on to say that as a result of that, we are made liable to all the miseries of this life. It's pretty all-encompassing, all the miseries of this life. And so Christians can be, at times, miserable. We're living between the already and the not yet, between Jesus' first coming and his promised return. And at times is acute misery. I don't want to keep beating a dead horse, but I quoted once again in the preparing for worship email a few lines from the article, what can miserable Christians sing? And what is the answer? Of course, it's the Psalms. Now, picking up on that theme, or actually maybe the other person borrowed from this, um, Christopher J.H. Wright, an Anglican clergyman, an Old Testament scholar, who followed in the wake of uh, John R.W. Stott in London. He's written a book called The God I Don't Understand, Reflections on Tough Questions of Faith. And I'm drawn to those kind of books because if I want to engage in an unbelieving world, it helps to be prepared with some of the answers, as it were, to tough questions that not just the unbeliever is dealing with, but what the believer is dealing with. And I just want to read a few words and and highlight uh, what he says. He says this, in the Bible, which we believe is God's word, such that what we find in it is what God wished to be there. There is plenty of lament, protest, anger, and baffled questions. The point we should notice, possibly to our surprise, is that all It is all hurled at God, not by his enemies, but by those who loved and trusted him most. It seems indeed that, and this is the important part, it is precisely those who have the closest relationship with God who feel most at liberty to pour out their pain in protest to God without fear of reproach. Lament is not only allowed in the Bible, It is modeled in abundance. And listen how he concludes this. God seems to want to give us as many words with which to fill out our complaint forms as to write our thank you notes. Isn't that interesting that God's word gives us the ability to thank God? God's word gives us the ability, the words, to complain to God. When was the last time you complained to God? Not complained about circumstances that you may be in, but when was the last time you went before the Lord and complained to Him? A believing complaint. You know, most of us are in one way or another battling sin. Some days it's a, it's a skirmish, other days it's an all-out battle. And the other day I was with a group of men um, and, and one of the men brought up uh, kind of the, the victorious Christian life that when he was young and he was exploring Christianity, he, he, he heard some people speak of, you know what, I haven't sinned in a while. 
And, and that's coming, of course, out of kind of a Wesleyan holiness tradition where you could get sanctification to the point that some believed that you could actually not sin. And this, this man I was talking with uh, said when he was a young man that that just didn't make sense. You can get to a point of sinlessness in the Christian life. And that friend said, I was repelled by that person. But who was he attracted to? Who are you and I attracted to? Is it people who have it all together or is it people who go and share their struggle and share their sin? I'm attracted to those kind of people. People who are humans, not robots. Not, not people who have some kind of artificial intelligence chip. They're living in the real world. And, 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 and here in the Psalms is the real world of struggle, of complaint, of sin. So I want to encourage us right off the bat that you and I can have a really significant ministry in the lives of others. By listening to their complaints to God. And sharing your complaints to God with them. As Chris Wright says, God gives us not only words for our thank you notes, He gives us words for our complaint forms. Well, let's turn our attention to this lament, Psalm 42. What do you think about people who talk to themselves? I mean, Many of us probably sing in the shower, right? There are some of us who talk to ourselves. And have you ever come upon somebody talking to themselves? I have a friend who likes to work on projects by himself. And when he's got a saw and a hammer and nails and measuring tape, he's out there talking to himself. I guess he wants company and he's talking to himself. But when you think about people who talk to themselves, are they crazy? Do they have a mental problem? Um... The dominant feature that we will see here in Psalm 42 and 43 is, is talking to yourself uh, via asking and answering a question. And this refrain that I mentioned earlier is three sets of questions and answers where the psalmist talks to himself. And we're going to make our way through Psalm 42 today and Psalm 43 next week by considering how the three movements, past, present, and future, show us how the psalmist counsels himself in each phase. So the first phase is the lost past, verses 1 through 6a, the first part of 6. The psalmist begins by looking back and join with me as I read verses 1 through 6. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? 
Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist begins by looking back, and he's looking back at his misery. That's the condition. And if you were listening closely, the picture here before us is that of a drought. The deer is panting, looking for water. We have a deer path in the backyard um, every day in the morning hours. Deer just go through our yard. And I have never yet seen a deer panting. Why? Because there's abundant water, a little stream kind of off of our property. There's, There's water abundance. I've never seen a deer panting. Look at this evocative picture of the deer trying to survive in drought. And the comparison, of course, is that's how his soul feels. You see that deer over there panting for water? That's me. That's how my soul feels. And yet there is water, right? Where's the water? It's his tears. He is being fed and sustained by his tears. And what do his tears say? And get this, it's not his enemies. It's not the enemy's taunt that says, where is your God? His own, his own self says, where is your God? Why is he so miserable? Well, here, he's remembering the past. The, he's separated from the house of God and the people of God. Maybe in one way, I was miserable in April. I really was. Ask my wife and children. I was miserable. Why? I wanted to be with you all. I hope that's what we all want. We long to be with God's people where God has promised to be present. You know, sometimes the the good old days really were better. And here the psalmist is saying, yes, it was better in the past. I, I think of Ezra and the rebuilding of the temple. The rebuilding was not like the earlier temple. It was It was not quite. That's why you did have some shouts of joy, but you had some weeping. Some some Israelites who, who remembered the past and they looked at the present and they wept. The good old days were better in this case. But what's the hope? What's the hope? What's the cure? Well, it's biblical hope. It's certainty. It's that faith that's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. The hope is found in the conversation. And and it's the question and answer number one. It's a self-focused catechism. You ask and you answer. And what's the question? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Why are you in distress, some translations say? Why are you deeply troubled? That's the question to himself. And his answer comes immediately. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I hope you'll take some time later to read that extended quote in the bulletin from Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. He says, you know, what's our problem? We, we listen to ourselves. We, we need to talk to ourselves. The psalmist is refraining or he's stopping listening to himself and he's starting to talk to himself. 
You see, memories of the past for the psalmist sharpen his pain in the present. But there is good news. The painful past is lost. He's not going to go back to the past. The bad news is the present is still troubled. And so the the psalmist continues not by looking back to the past, but by looking around. And we come now to the troubled present. He's out of the lost past and he's in the troubled present. And we see that in verses uh, 6b through 11, as I will read now. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, My adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. How does the troubled present start? Here's the opening line. My soul is cast down within me. He's miserable. And what is his misery? It's no longer a drought. The main picture, the main metaphor is that of a storm. You know, with a drought, there is too little water. And now the storm, the deluge, there's too much water. Don't we really want to live in the middle and away from extremes? Because an extreme on one end is dangerous. There's either no water or too much water. I think there's a, kids, help me out. Isn't there a, a, a story, a fairy tale about something too soft, something too hard, something just right, something too hot, something too cold, something just right? The extremes are being presented. We're now in a storm. And the language is, is the language says that God himself is the source of his trials. Uh, earlier, we heard from Lamentations. The author is saying that, God, you've done this to me. I mean, in one sense, Job said the same thing. God, you've done this to me. The psalmist here says, your breakers and your waves. I think Jonah, that language is in Jonah as well. He's oppressed by his enemies. He's taunted by adversaries. He feels forgotten by God. Look at Look at verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? What's his biggest complaint to God? Not the troubles with even his own tears or the troubles with these enemy pagans around him. No, his biggest complaint is, God, I feel abandoned by you. That's the misery, the condition. Well, what's the cure? What's the hope? It's another conversation. It's another self-focused catechism. You ask the question and you answer the question. It's an audience of one. You're the speaker and the hearer. Both times. 
It's the same question. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? What honesty. Have you ever said something like that to God? Or are your complaints often looking at somebody else and saying, you did this. If you would have only done that, here is a complaint to God himself. And it's the same hope. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In his book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest, the Puritan Richard Baxter, uh, living in the 17th century, said this, by soliloquy, and I had to look that up to remind myself, but it's kind of a, a speech. Uh, it's where you yourself are speak, uh, speaking like you see in Shakespeare's plays. By soliloquy or a pleading the case with thyself, thou must in thy meditation quicken thy own heart, enter into a serious debate with it, plead with it the most moving and affecting language and urge it with the most powerful and weighty arguments. It's what holy men of God have practiced in all ages. And get this, it is a preaching to one's self. Every good Christian is a good preacher to his own soul. If thou can talk of divine things to others, why not also talk to thine own heart? Lloyd-Jones didn't come up with it. Baxter didn't come up with it. God himself came up with it from his and revealed it in his word. We preach to ourselves. John Flavel, another Puritan in England, said this, but saints know that these soliloquies and self-conferences to be excellent, to be of excellent use and advantage. Again, he's championing preach to yourself, talk to yourself. In By Faith magazine, in an article entitled Feeling Bad About Yourself, Professor Kelly Capick uh, at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, says, you know what? I counsel people all day, hope in God, trust in God, God is good. Why do I forget to say that to myself? You know, I think a lot of us are capable of encouraging others. Are you capable of encouraging yourself? That's what the psalmist is doing. Have you ever talked to yourself about who God is and what he has done and is doing and will do for you in Jesus? I want you to look with me at verse 8. It's the center of gravity. It's the turning point of the entire psalm, Psalm 42 and 43. Verse 8 interrupts the flow of the thought and it injects a note of con uh, confidence. It's a statement of faith and trust in the midst of trials. The psalmist is beginning to revive. He cries out, notice in verse 9, I say to God, well, after he talks about God's steadfast love and his song in the night. And he speaks of God being the God of his life. He says to God, my rock, my rock. The psalmist is not an atheist. He is a discouraged believer. And I think he's got good company among all of us. I think it'd be a good exercise for you to look at Psalm 42 later and count up the question marks. 
There's a lot of questions in Psalm 42 and into 43, and questions are not doubts. They are believing questions. So in his catechism, in the first half, the psalmist is battered by the circumstances, and in the second half, he is sure about God. He is unstable and he's stable. He's uncertain and he's certain. He believes or he 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 doesn't believe and he believes. And so talking to yourself as we see in Psalm 42 is not an indication of mental illness. Rather talking to yourself is an indicator of spiritual sanity. Talk to yourself. Remind yourself of what you already know. It's self-talk. It's self-counsel. You know, in our opening article of why we do what we do in worship, in the order of worship, we write this. Because we are prone to forget the good news of the gospel, corporate worship should, by its very structure and biblical content, remind us of the gospel week after week after week. Why do we need reminded? Help me out, kids. Why would we need to be reminded? Because we forget. We don't remember. I remember a speaker at a chapel service in seminary said a sermon is reminding people what they already know. And of course, that's reminding believers of what they already know. And there's an evangelistic aspect, but I get his point. Remind us what we already know. Remind us of what we've already confessed and professed. John Newton talked to himself. When I was young, I was sure of many things. There are only two things of which now I am sure. One is I am a miserable sinner. The other is that Jesus Christ is an all-sufficient Savior. He is well taught who gets these two lessons. Who was John Newton's instructor? The Word, the Spirit, himself. He taught himself these two lessons. My friends, if you are presently in the dark, and we are all at times in the dark, remind yourself of what God has said to you in the light. The unchanging God, the God who does not lie, the God who is absolutely trustworthy. Pray to God and preach to yourself. You know the truth. Ask God to make that knowledge of the truth be matched with an experience of the force of that truth. Preach the gospel to yourself each and every day. Why? Because you and I are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Take our heart, take and seal it, the hymn writer says. If you find it difficult to talk to yourself in this way, then invite someone else who's godly and wise to come alongside you. You know, maybe one that doesn't operate out of perfectionism or a victorious Christian life, one who is real, not a robot, and ask them to help you. Ask them to help you. I want to finish by reminding us that Scripture has a tale of two gardens and a tale of two conversations in that garden, in those gardens. Think with me about conversation number one in garden number one. Adam and Eve, what did they do? 
Well, they listened to the serpent. They listened to the deceiver, but they, they listened to themselves. They, their desires, they, they, they listened and acted based on their desires. And they concluded that their desires were greater than God's word. Their desires were more important than God's word. Their desires would lead to something more beautiful than God's word. We know what happened as a result of them listening to themselves. Because there was another time, another man in another garden who before that was in a wilderness. And he was tempted also, but he responded by speaking God's word, of course, to the devil. But in speaking God's word, he was speaking God's word to himself. He was talking to himself. But in that garden, Jesus, he sang this psalm and others, he he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, yet not what I will, but what you will. My friends, this is our Savior. Our Savior is one who said, I am greatly distressed and troubled. This is our Savior who said, in other words, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Jesus' soul was troubled to the point of death. If there's anything we walk away from today, Rejoice that that is our Savior. That is our Lord. He is not a robot. Fully man, fully divine. Our only hope. And this man was humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Two gardens, two conversations. Talking to yourself both times, one leads to death and one leads to life. So for all you miserable Christians, not only sing the Psalms, but talk to yourself. You see, the Psalms capture God's faithfulness to and his steadfast love of his people in all the trials of life. And what is the ultimate expression of the steadfast love of God is as the psalmist refers to in verse 8, what is the ultimate expression? Who is the ultimate expression of the steadfast, unchanging, undying, always and forever love of God? It's Jesus Christ. My friends, Jesus is the ultimate and only refuge of a weary soul. Is he yours? If not, listen to him. Speak through his word. Listen to his call to come to him. And speak to him words of repentance and faith from a humble and contrite heart. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, 
you are holy and righteous and just. And you have been pleased, Father, in the person and work of Jesus to come into a world that is unholy and unrighteous and unjust. Father, we give you thanks and praise that that we have before us in Psalm 42 the rough and tumble of life in a sinful and fallen world, a life full of misery and discouragement and despair. And yet, Father, in the midst of that, there is the hope that is found only in you and the declaration of the psalmist and indeed our declaration that our salvation and our God is you. Oh, Father, be pleased to enable our downcast souls to look upward to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is true.